Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Making Milestone podcast. The other day on my Instagram, I asked for podcast topic suggestions, and I got a lot of good ones, so the next several podcasts might be out of those suggestions. But the one that I really wanted to start with that I find interesting was someone suggested to talk about patriarchy and the implications it has on horsemanship. And I think this is a great topic because I don't think a lot of people necessarily connect the treatment of horses towards the patriarchal constructs of society. But I want to take it a step further and talk about imperialism and capitalism and the impact that those factors have or those systems have on horsemanship and how we treat horses because I honestly think that a lot of the issues that I talk about horse welfare come down to the combination of all of those systems and the beliefs that they create. I think that a lot of the abuse that we see in the industry is the direct result of those systems because of how we've learned to respond to the environment in those systems, and also because of the stress and implications that they enforce on people and how we kind of all have to conform to them. So, If you're not interested in this topic, then skip through this one because this is going to be a topic that is like anti-patriarchy, anti-capitalism type deal. So if you're not into that, don't listen. But I think that it might give people some interesting insights on how they view themselves within the current world system, as well as how they view the treatment of horses. Because I think there's a lot of factors that result in negative treatment towards horses that we don't even necessarily associate with the root causes. And I really love the fact that this topic was suggested. So thank you to the person who suggested it because it's a fantastic topic. Before we jump into it, as usual, I need to shamelessly self-promote because I don't make any money off of the podcast and I put a decent number of time into it because I like doing it. So I'm going to plug myself. If you're interested in helping support my work and what I do, as well as accessing free tutorials and, uh, Q&As monthly, you can check out my Patreon and subscribe for as little as a dollar a month. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash s-d-equus s-d-e-q-u-u-s The link will be down in the description of this podcast. I also have an online store where I sell riding apparel, bridles, and treat bags, and neck ropes, and more. That is Shop Milestone Eck shopmilestoneeq.com. That'll also be linked down below. I also temporarily reopened my graphic tea store and I've released some cool new designs that are only going to be available for a limited time. So I'll also link that down below and you can check those out because I'm only going to be keeping the most popular design to potentially stock as regular stock in my main store. And you can check that out down below. And then of course, I also have my main website, milestoneequestrian.ca, where you can purchase past webinars and other types of things to access help with training without doing a subscription service. So thank you to everyone who supports me. Thank you to all my Patreon subscribers and everyone who supports the store and anything to do with my content. I really appreciate it. Couldn't do this without you. And now let's jump into the topic. (laughs) This is going to be a bit of a doozy. So we're going to start off with patriarchy and the implications that has on horsemanship. And I would say the most notable, memorable part of this influence that it has on the treatment of horses that people probably encounter on a fairly regular basis is the entire idea of being like gritty and tough and being the boss of the horse, showing the horse who's boss, and basically, in other words, 
being big and powerful in how you handle horses and also how you handle yourself. The entire notion that you need to get back on the horse, like there's a quote that's like, you got to get back on the horse or go to the hospital. Those are your two options. First of all, it implies that in all situations, unless you're hurt enough to need to go to emergency in the hospital, that you should always get back on the horse no matter what. That is not only dangerous to human well-being, it's also a really negative representation of human ego because that's largely just about the human being able to flex the fact that despite their fear despite falling off they can get back on the horse it also promotes the ideal that horses will continue to throw people if they are successful in getting them off and you don't get immediately back on which is flawed in the sense that by the time a person is able to get back on a horse, they're not going to associate you getting on with the fact that they threw you. It's too separate from what happened. The reinforcement of having thrown you, if it reinforces their desire to want to throw you in the future, has already happened. And you could fix that behavior by addressing whatever the underlying cause is for them throwing you off in the first place. But I think the more important thing is that there's a lot of injuries you could have that you wouldn't necessarily go immediately to emergency for or that you won't notice the effects of until after falling. So the idea that you need to immediately get back on to prove something is all about stroking human ego and trying to appear tough and trying to appear gritty despite the implications it might have to your own physical health and your own mental health as well as the horse's physical and mental health. And it also implies that the only way to fix issues that result in riders falling off is by deliberately getting back on the horse no matter what and riding them it downgrades the importance of groundwork and it also encourages a lot of negative mindsets that don't serve people or horses and that's rooted in this entire be gritty be tough be strong mentality which again in my opinion has patriarchal foundations because we see that in regular day-to-day life too like i'm going to encourage everyone listening to this to consider how many insults they can think of that are related to feministic features that are related to being womanly or being girly like don't be such a girl don't be such a pussy don't you're 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 acting like a girl don't be don't cry don't do this and there's a lot of insults that we use to degrade people's strength and who they are as a person that at their core are referencing women or female presenting people feministic tendencies uh like a lot of them and we also see misogyny indirectly projected at animals as well like how many people do you know that demonize mares that are like oh mares are so bitchy mares are so temperamental i don't like riding mares because they all are just like this and they get demonized to such an extent that people prejudge them when they hear that a horse is a mare any of the unwanted behaviors that the horse displays are going to be equated to her gender Whereas when you're riding geldings, even when they display the same negative behaviors, it's not going to be equated to being related to their gender in the same way. And even with stallions, there's certain stereotypes that follow stallions too, but they're not as disrespectful and deeply ingrained as the ones towards mares. And the more interesting thing is that the misogyny we see directed towards horses is also directed to a lot of other female animals, um, or even just animals that are viewed as a a female type pet, like cats. 
the idea of being a crazy cat lady is like an insult and it's used as an insult to make fun of women who don't get married and who enjoy being by themselves and who are content with themselves and happen to have cats. There's also a decent portion of men that hate cats for whatever reason. Huge red flag for anyone who dates men. If they hate cats, Generally speaking, they struggle with some level of consent, which is why they don't vibe with cats, because cats demand consent. And if you try to force yourself on a cat and make them like you, they'll hate you more. If they're allergic to cats or something, or they're scared of them because they got scratched as a kid, a little bit different. Still kind of displaced, in my opinion, because you don't actually hate the cat. You hate your allergy, or you're just afraid of a bad experience with the cat. But all that aside, big red flag. And cats are an animal that is commonly connected to being like a female presenting pet whereas dogs are portrayed as more masculine which is very strange because they're just animals and like personally for me I love both dogs and cats I couldn't choose between them because they're different animals they're very different animals and they serve different purposes in my life and they fill different voids in my soul in terms of like what animals I like to have around so I'd always want to have both but that's beside the point We see a lot of misogyny directed at animals as well as directed at humans. And that's particularly, it's particularly interesting because I think that shows how deeply ingrained misogyny is in society. And misogyny stems from the patriarchal society where we've put men at the center of society and the idea of being masculine as being ideal. And what that has what this results in is a lot of people feel the need to mask certain emotions and appear tough, even when they're really struggling. And the patriarchy negatively impacts men as well. There's this idea that hating the patriarchy is being anti-man, when it's really not, because the patriarchy is what promotes the very high suicide rate we see in men and other mental health issues, because they're taught to mask their emotions. They're not allowed to connect with people in the same way that women and other people might be encouraged to do because female people from the beginning were taught to be more open about our emotions and we tend to be more upfront about how we're feeling to friends and just show more emotion it's not viewed as weak in the same way to be sad like if you're sad in public it's viewed as a weakness and they'll be like oh what a distraught little lady but we're not discouraged from showing sadness in the same way men are so we're allowed to feel our feelings more deeply and we connect with our friends more deeply as a result just as a general rule this isn't to say that every single person within any of the genders does this but it's just we're we're stereotyping based off of the societal construct and this allows us to let go of our emotions because we're feeling them whereas men are taught that being sad and crying is a weakness and that it makes you appear weak and like it goes as far as people being told oh don't cry and women are also told not to cry which is interesting because they're sad and they're crying and telling them not to do it is just telling them that that emotion is not acceptable to share which encourages emotional suppression which is not healthy so sadness is something that is discouraged in all aspects of society but especially for men we are taught that it is not masculine to cry to the point where even women who the patriarchy does not serve even remotely view it as unattractive sometimes when men cry for me it's actually such a green flag if a guy is willing to cry i love when they're willing to show emotions love it 
Um, so if you're a man and you cry, yes, 10 out of 10, because uh, crying is a normal thing to do. And it's kind of scary when sad things happen and people can't cry because they're suppressing all of that. And so sadness is an emotion that is viewed as less acceptable, whereas anger is a much more accepted emotion for men to show. And then that's how their sadness often comes out when they suppress it is as anger, because it's viewed as weakness to show emotions. So men can't connect as deeply with those around them and they can't feel their emotions as deeply out of fear of being portrayed as weak and non-masculine which is interesting and also femininity is something that's used as an insult against men a lot of the times it's viewed as bad to be even perceived as remotely feminine which is why there's so many of these insults that are used against men or used to imply some level of weakness that are rooted in female descriptors uh for example calling someone a pussy to imply weakness i've always found this one particularly interesting because those things can shoot babies out of them and then bounce right back like they're they're pretty badass and strong uh whereas you could flick someone in the balls and they'll be doubled over so um pretty weird that it's like grow some balls when it's saying to like be tougher be more courageous whatever but like when you're being weak and afraid you're called a pussy uh, seems kind of backwards uh but again this comes down to the patriarchal society where male presenting things don't want to be perceived as weak and it impacts everyone negatively and so this comes back to the horse world too because people feel the need to try to be portrayed as tough and to like ride through their pain ride through injuries get back on the horse be dominant over the horse and be tough and like kind of come off as masculine like i see it a lot with um people who are really diehard supporters of dominance theory and horses that are women, they are not all of them, but a decent portion of them are what I would view as kind of pick me women where they behave in a certain way to try to appeal to like a male dominated society and get the approval of men who are promoting certain types of violence in horse training um, and be really gritty and tough and come across as more masculine and they are also toxic in the sense that they completely put down female tendencies as well and like being weak and like take pride in the fact that they're like less inherently feminine than or like less f feminine stereotypes than what other people might be and it's toxic too because then they shame women who are not like them and imply that they're inherently weaker or less valid as an equestrian because they're not doing the same types of things that are viewed as gritty and strong and it's rooted in this patriarchal construct of dominating horses and i also think that this is why the horse girl stereotype has come about to be quite honest because there's been studies on women and their connection with horses over the course of history and generally speaking there's this belief that women are more able to connect with horses horses are highly emotional animals who feel their emotions deeply and who show their behaviors outwardly and don't mask them unless we literally train them to so women naturally if they're more capable of feeling emotion and, and connecting more deeply in relationships because they're encouraged to do so in a way that men traditionally haven't been maybe they're more able to connect with horses as a result and then i think that level of connection and their success with these big strong potentially dangerous animals despite not historically dominating them in the same way men might be willing to has led to a negative stereotype of the horse girl to be used as something to drag women who really like being around horses like you can love dogs or cats in just as much of an obsessive way as you can horses and you're not going to be dragged for it if you're 
like a real dog person or a cat person. Not in the same way as with horses. There's this whole stereotype and narrative that revolves around horse girls being crazy and like inherently less attractive and desired by men. Which, I mean, who really cares? Because if you have to pretend to be someone else who's desired by men, who cares? They suck. Um, anywho, it's used as a put-down. And I think that stems from the fact that there's, like, some weird level of jealousy from men towards horses. And it also, I think, like, and I'm sure a lot of people can vouch for this fact, men have a really weird concept of horses and a certain body part, which you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the one that men are most obsessed with in themselves and other animals. But they're so weird about horse penises. Like, I'm not going to go in depth on this because it's like weird as hell and it bothers me. But they sexualize horseback riding to such an odd extent. And then also obsess over horse genitalia on male horses. And it's really freaking weird. And I think it's because they feel inadequate around horses. And then since they're so obsessed with that, they assume that that's what women are like what about horses appeals to women, which is so gross. And then they also try to sexualize the act of riding a horse as if the reason why women might do it is because of some like sexual aspect, which it's not at all. Like I've had men ask like, oh, do you like orgasm while riding? And I'm like, no, no, Trevor. Like if I did, then you wouldn't be having such a hard time with the ladies now, would you? If it was that easy, you know, like be for real. Um, anyways, that part's weird too. And I think that it stems from that. There's like this weird thing that they have with horses and it's like a straight man thing, like a straight cisgendered man thing. I would say like, it's not even like an all men thing. It's a predominantly straight man thing where they have this really weird thing about horses. And I think that also has patriarchal roots. It's super weird. But the act of dominating horses is very inherently masculine because I think it makes men feel big and powerful when they're able to overpower this larger, very muscular and strong animal. And a lot of horse training has come about from that. And then the idea of being softer and more considerate of the horse's emotions and feelings and not wanting to stress them is viewed as inherently weak. Like people will go as far as calling you a tree hugger, a hippie. They'll call you like weak. Um, they'll call you like a treat peddling Karen. And like, there's so many funny insults that these people have. Like they'll call you a snowflake for using methods that are softer, even if they work. So there's this mindset that it is inherently shameful to value the feelings and emotions of another creature and train them with more kindness, even if you get good results and it's safer. It's viewed as more shameful. And that is largely perpetuated by men and like a or like a patriarchal mindset that's upheld by other people, such as women. And it's super weird. It's so weird. Like the idea that it's something like it's a weakness to just be more considerate of feelings. I, I think the psychology behind it, in my opinion, has to stem from the fact that when you've been taught to suppress your emotions and that it's shameful to express them, you become angry and bitter about the fact that you're not able to do so. And then I think that feeling is suppressed and you're not necessarily consciously aware of it. So when it's suggested that you give a level of kindness and understanding to another creature that has not been afforded to yourself, I think a lot of people have a problem with that and it makes them angry, inexplicably so. And then they'll make excuses as to why they're not even willing to welcome the thought of that idea but I think it stems from the fact that they've not been welcomed in feeling and 
sharing their own emotions and feelings and having their stress and their fear and their anxiety and their hurt heard and seen by those around them. So the idea of hearing and seeing a creature that is viewed as less intelligent and less central to the earth and like the human centric narrative the idea of giving that animal a level of kindness and understanding and hearing them in a way that you yourself have never been allowed to be heard, I think pisses a lot of people off. And again, it stems from the fact that emotional suppression is encouraged in people. And then this is where we're going to get into capitalism, because I think a component of this also relates to the capitalistic mindset in the world. And the reason being is that a lot of people are only working as hard as they do because they need to put food on the table and they need a roof over their head. A lot of people hate their jobs, they're miserable, they don't want to work as often or as long of hours as they are, but they feel obligated to do so because of the current structure of society. And a lot of our value in society, or like the encouraged value, is to be valued by how hard you work. And people will almost flex working insane hours. Well, not even almost, they will. They'll flex working absolutely ridiculous, unethical hours and have a sense of pride from it. They'll be proud of how hard they work. They'll be proud of putting them in a situation where they are completely overworking and burning themselves out for the benefit of someone who's profiting off of their backs, and they are proud of it. So in our day-to-day society, I would say the average human doesn't really have real autonomy. We have the idea of autonomy. We're taught to believe that we can do anything and that we can achieve anything we want if we just work hard enough, which makes people feel that if they're not able to achieve what they desire, that it's a fault of their own rather than a fault of the system. So when then we are encouraged to give horses choice in work and give them autonomy in their life and offer them something that most humans do not actually have, you get an anger response because people feel stuck and trapped in their own jobs. They hate their own jobs. They're forced to work and do things in order to pay their way in life, even if they might not want to. So then they project those mindsets back onto the horse. And when it's suggested that they give their horse a level of understanding that they're not offered themselves, they get incredibly offended and upset because it just seems like a deep injustice. And it's just also weird because we should also be looking at the unhealthy aspects of our own society and looking at the fact that like the entire narrative of there being like a cost of living, like it, uh, like a price you have to pay in order to just sustain life when none of us consented to living because you can't when you're born, you're just born and you're here and you have no say in the matter. So the idea that there's a certain price we need to pay simply to just get the bare minimum is honestly pretty crazy to me because again, that's a capitalistic mindset. Like if you look into a lot of the beliefs systems of indigenous cultures. I'm not going to go into detail on this because it's not my place and I'm not well educated enough to really say, but they have this idea that we're put on this planet just to live and just to like be part of nature and interact with the environment around us, not to achieve a certain level of output, not to get a good job, not to get like the primary source of attention from people in the world, not to be viewed as big and important, not to be successful. Like they're or if they or if they oh do use the term successful, the idea of success isn't a capitalistic one. So there's this just this entire narrative that we've created where 
even though we don't choose to be on this planet, that there's a certain level of output that we owe the world simply to just exist and be fed and have access to water and have access to shelter. Even as we live in a world where there would be more than enough food for everyone if we properly allocated it, where there'd be more than enough water for everyone if we properly allocated it, and where there would be more than enough shelter for everyone if we properly allocated it. But the problem is we have a select few people in charge of like what is essentially a pyramid scheme who are hoarding a ton of the resources resources and using them as leverage to create the level of output that affords them the amount of money that they have because people who are billionaires could not profit to the tune of billions without being on the backs of other people that they pay much less and when you hoard resources that people need to survive and you make it where they need to work a certain amount in order to survive and pay their bills, then you make them absolutely dependent on you. And there's all these systems that have been put into place to make this happen. Like, even if you just look around the average city and you look at how many trees and stuff they plant to be like, I don't know, like, like visually appealing or whatever in a city, how many of those trees are fruit trees or food producing plants of any sort? Oh, wait. We know the answer. It's very few. They won't plant things that people can use to feed themselves. Community gardens are a fairly new concept and they're grossly underfunded and underbuilt. Even though you could build community gardens on the top of a lot of the apartment buildings that we see in the city and get them lots of sun and produce way more food, but there's not incentive for people in power to want to do this because it'll make people spend less money at grocery stores and less money doing things to afford living and so there's this idea that it's inherently unjust to offer these free things and what it's also interesting is that there's this entire narrative that's been created where theft even if you're stealing from like a billionaire corporation who has profited to the tune that they have off of stealing other people's wages and doing inherently unethical things that impact way 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 more people in a negative way and also result in like the homelessness and deaths of people because of how many resources those funding these major corporations and grocery stores are hoarding it's viewed as in more inherently bad to be the peasant person stealing from a billionaire than it is to be the billionaire being a billionaire and therefore stealing resources from millions of people worldwide, billions of people worldwide. And isn't that interesting? Because who do you think creates all these laws? And this is not me encouraging people to steal, but I'm also not discouraging you to if it's from a billionaire corporation, let's be for real. I don't give a shit what you do. Um, they're stealing way more than like an orange or whatever people would take from the grocery store. And they've also upped food prices to an insane amount over the last several years in particular under the guise of needing to because the cost of living and the cost of products going up, even though their profit margins are larger than ever. And by profit margins, that means they're making more money than ever, even when you factor in the rising costs of things, which means they don't actually need to up these costs. And that aside, even if they were making less, who cares? They're billionaires. I don't give a shit if they're making less money. I don't care. Be poorer. Have a, a few less yachts and a few less houses. I don't care. Cry me a fucking river. I don't care. I would love nothing more actually than to see, have reality shows set up where we give billionaires, like put them in like a compound where they have to live like the average person in the world for like a month or two and not have anything they're used to and then we all just get to watch them suffer and then the funds from that reality show could go into social services to help way more people that'd be dope but all that aside like they profit off of the harm of 
billions of people worldwide. And then there's this narrative created that those who are suffering way more and who are barely making ends meet and who are living paycheck to paycheck owe those people a certain level of respect so as to not potentially disrupt their profit margin by stealing food that they might need to eat. Like I've even seen people shamed online for stealing baby formula. Do you know how insane that is? I don't really care if they're selling it after or what, but like the fact that people even need to steal something that is so crucial and essential to human life and like helping them take care of their babies is like insane. We should never be living in a world where people cannot get their basic bare necessities. And what's also interesting to me is that there's all these narratives about being pro-life that are encouraged, uh, but it stops as soon as the baby is no longer a fetus. No one cares if a baby's not getting fed enough because they're not all promoting social housing resources or social food resources so that no matter what type of family someone is born into, that they always have access to food and shelter and safety. There's not incentives being put into place to create the societal structures to allow for those things. And yet we claim that life is sacred and matters a lot. But then as soon as that life is here, it's like, okay, never mind. You're on your own, kid. Get a job if you want to live. And if you can't get a job, no matter what has happened to you in your life or how many obstacles you've met compared to another person, sucks to be you. It's still your fault if you're homeless. And that's the entire narrative that is being shared. It is so messed up. So capitalism at its core is robbing people of their daily autonomy and making them feel like they need to be able to give a certain level of output into the world in order to be worthy as a human being, in order to deserve life. And then we project that onto all other aspects of our life, including our horses. Like the idea that you're inherently less valuable as a person if you're not able to work and make money for someone else uh, and pay your way to live and that you are less deserving of basic needs because of that is so messed up. And it's been going on for like most of our lifetimes, but in the grand scheme of things, like capitalism is a fairly new structure. Uh, and like humans are also fairly new to the planet. If you want to look at like the history of like the world or whatever. So we feel helpless in this structure. And as a result, a lot of people just assume that it's the way things have to be. They can't imagine things being in another more ethical, more fair, fairly distributed way, because first of all, the people in power have tons of money to throw up propaganda to make you feel like that's not feasible, because really, they're the ones who would suffer the most if things were more fairly allocated, because they're the ones hoarding the most resources. So they'd be the first people to have to share their resources, not the average person, not even the average wealthy person, you know, because most of us are so far removed from the lives of billionaires that we cannot even fathom how they live. Like we are mere peasants to them. They don't give a shit about us. And we don't get exposed to their lifestyle and to the degree of their wealth and how disposable their income is. And that's intentional. We're so far removed from it so that we can pretend that we're almost like them and that they're just people who worked extra hard. But the entire narrative that a billionaire is working hundreds of thousands of times harder than the average person is so flawed too, because a lot of the hardest workers that I know get paid the least. So hard work isn't being compensated fairly. You're not being compensated for how hard your job is and how hard of an employee, how hard you work. You're not being compensated accordingly. It's all this farce that is fed to us so that we believe and buy into the system or are just apathetic enough that we won't disrupt it. And the people that benefit from that system being upheld are not the average person like i can guarantee anyone listening to this even if you're listening to this and feeling attacked you're not who i'm talking about because no billionaire is going to be listening to my podcast they don't know that i exist and they don't care 
So even if your parents are millionaires, you're not at the level of a billionaire and you're not hoarding resources to the extent of billionaires who could literally cure world hunger with their yearly income, sometimes even like their biannually income. And that's just one billionaire. If we look at all of the billionaires in the world, if they all just gave a little bit of their money, they could solve a lot of world problems. But the key is that they do not want to. So I don't care about anyone inconveniencing the life of a billionaire or making their profit margin lower because they all have the power to help millions of people with little effort on their part and they choose not to. So there is no ethical billionaire. And for anyone who's listened to my stuff that feels for whatever reason compelled to defend a billionaire, I want to ask you why. Like, are they paying you a good sum of money to do so because they don't care about you? Why are you defending them? You're never going to be a billionaire. You're never even going to be fractionally as rich as them. So why are you fighting for their honor when they wouldn't fight for yours? Because they're literally choosing on a daily basis to not do that. So this mindset of capitalism is then projected on our horses where we feel horses owe us a certain level of output for work in order to receive their basic care practices. Like people will justify how hard they make their horse work or the stress they put their horse through on the basis of, oh, well, like I pay a lot of money for them to be alive. I pay their board every month, da, 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 da. And it's like, yeah, you do because you chose to have that animal. You, anytime you choose to get an animal or a life to take care of or to have a child, you are choosing to take care of a creature that cannot take care of itself. And that is something you sign up for upon getting it. It's not something you can try to leverage to justify how you treat them. It's a choice. If you don't want to have to take care of the basic care of an animal, don't get one. But we use our horses and our use of them to justify the care and maintenance that we put into them because they're expensive and we tend to have to work harder in order to keep them. So we kind of have a capitalistic mindset on what our horses owe to us in order to justify what we ask them to do in return. But they're not employees. They didn't choose to be hired by us. They don't choose to live the lives that they do. It's our job to provide for them because we chose to have them as animals. And this narrative that they need to be a certain level of usefulness in order to be provided their basic care practices is a capitalistic one. This narrative that horses who are more expensive and more valuable to the people who own them are less deserving of basic necessities such as social group turnout with other horses because of the risk of monetary loss to people is a capitalistic one. It is not our place to try to justify depriving a creature of their basic needs for healthy, happy lives because they are valuable to us. We can ensure them. We can make choices to make them safer in the necessary care that we as owners should have to provide for them. But using value as a reason to deprive them of basic care needs is so flawed and so rooted in capitalism that there's not really any way around the fact that the vast majority of the welfare issues we see in the horse industry at their core come out of a capitalistic construct. Because if we hadn't all been trained to believe that we owe the world a certain level of work output in order to be deserving of life, then we wouldn't be projecting those viewpoints on our horses and their value and their ability to produce for us wouldn't be so important. Like even if our horses don't make us money, the ability to produce could literally just be their ability to compete and be valuable in the show ring. And 
we also see the capitalistic mindset and how easily people will pawn off horses when they're no longer useful. And again, I don't mean this to be mean, I'm saying it because it's true. If the bond and the value of the horse in terms of how they made you feel and how much you loved them as a creature was actually what was taking precedence in your care of them and in your ownership of them, then when a horse can no longer compete or show, they wouldn't be replaced because the bond would be so sacred and important to the person who owns that horse that showing would take a back seat. And when that doesn't, what that clearly states is that showing is of the utmost importance to the owner and rider. And so they can justify rehoming that horse and pawning off their lame, injured, or elderly horse onto someone else when it's no longer useful to them because showing is what their priority is. There's no way around that. If showing wasn't the priority, a horse no longer being useful for showing or riding or having you move up the levels would not be replaced because the horse would take precedence. And a lot of people will deny this and they get really upset when you say this, but that's just the fact of the matter. If showing wasn't the primary goal for people, they wouldn't be able to replace horses that they supposedly love simply to prioritize showing because that's really the only reason. When a horse gets injured and can no longer compete a meter 20, the owner that sells it to a lower level rider is often doing so to get another horse that they can compete at a meter 20. When the horse that they ride can no longer be ridden, the person selling it is often doing so to get a horse that they can ride and that is because showing and riding take precedence over the actual personality and impact that the presence of the horse has in their life full stop so the horse's ability to provide some level of output and work to the person something that they find valuable doesn't have to be money can just be the value of being in the show ring or the value of getting to ride them takes precedence over the actual being of the horse in general and that is perpetuated rampantly in the horse world it is so normalized to just rehome horses when they no longer serve a purpose to us and i'm not inherently against selling horses but i do have a big problem with how easily some people will sell horses who have career-ending injuries and are a lot less desirable to the average person simply because they want another horse. And the reason why I have a problem with this is because these horses hold the most value to the person who's gotten to know them through the highlights of their career. And if that person no longer sees any value of them when they can no longer use them for their intended purpose, why would someone else see enough value in the horse to want to take them on? There's too many unwanted horses in this world that are getting pawned off because they're no longer useful for some level of value output for the person that end up in bad places because of it. And at its core, that is a capitalistic mindset. No way around it. No if, ands, or buts. And I say this as someone who would have happily sold off a horse who got injured when I could no longer compete them. And I have done that. Luckily, they did find good homes, but that's what I did because competing was my priority. There's literally no way around that. Right now, if like one of my horses got injured, I would keep it because, and I still do, like even when I'm not showing them because their value surpasses the value of showing to me now, but it did not used to be that way. And that is just fact. And people get mad when you point that out because they're not ready to accept it, but it's true. And so for anyone who that statement makes them mad and they want to deny it, I would encourage you to really stop and think and think that if showing is not your priority, why would you rehome a horse who's injured at all? And I know people will go, horses are expensive, like they want a horse that they can use for something if they're going to pay for one, which I get. But if you're only willing to pay for a horse that you can use for a specific purpose, and when they no longer serve that purpose, you don't want them anymore, no matter how much you said you loved them and bonded with them before, then that is a choice that says something. It says where your priorities lie. lie. And 
the fact that you're not ready to accept that isn't an excuse to pretend that your decisions mean something else. Lying about what you're actually doing doesn't change the truth of the matter. It just is placating yourself and lacking in self-awareness to make yourself feel better. And it doesn't help anyone, including yourself and especially your horse. And so that whole thing is like a capitalistic mindset and how we use horses in competition and the things that we justify for their use in competition and also how we justify certain levels of mistreatment depending on who does them all is capitalistic the idea that an upper level equestrian or an olympic level equestrian is inherently more knowledgeable about horse welfare and will guarantee better treatment to their horse simply because of their status in the world is a capitalistic mindset it's this idea that once you climb the pyramid enough that you are inherently better than everyone else and all-knowing and that people should bow down to your views, even if you're less educated on the topics that whatever your decisions are actually apply to. So, for example, horse welfare. How many upper-level equestrians or Olympians actually have any relevant equine science education, and especially in horse welfare and horse behavior? How many? Because I'm pretty sure it's basically none. So why are we deferring to them when we're talking about horse welfare and what isn't isn't fair to horses and what level of stress of horses is justifiable? It makes no sense. But the reason why we do is because it's all status based. It's root. It's rooted in this arbitrary status based system, this pyramid of social status that we've created. That's again due to capitalism. And we give people favor in terms of how much weight their opinion holds simply because who they are, not because of how much they know or how qualified they are to discuss these topics. And then what this also does is that when people get to a certain level of equestrianism or a certain level of status anywhere in the world, they get given certain privileges that are inherently better than where they started off from, which gives them more incentive to uphold a system that is now serving them because they benefit from it and it makes them feel special and valued and important in a way that causes them to kind of assimilate into the culture that they're in. A lot of the upper level riders that we see, even ones that are active abusers, did not start out their riding career being like that. They were indoctrinated and trained into doing so through being encouraged and reinforced by those around them. And when they got reinforced for things that are not ethical and it brings them social favor and they're able to make friends and now they're fully immersed in this culture of a lot of people who either actively engage in abuse or at the bare minimum turn a blind eye to it. It's very hard to go up against that system because if you rock the boat, you are threatened to get thrown out of the club. So a lot of them don't want to do that. Even people who can look around and know what they're doing is wrong. People might wonder why so few upper level riders actually speak out for horse welfare and actually call out what's going on. And it's because they lose social favor for doing so. The tides are starting to change because it's becoming more socially acceptable to do that. And even encouraged by people outside of the horse world and also outside of the major competitive industry or who aren't competing at as high levels so it's becoming more popular and encouraged to do so which is making it easier for people to speak up but prior to that it would make you so unpopular and you'd get so ostracized from the groups that you're in that people would be too scared to do it even if they know it's wrong and they would look at it and go my voice doesn't matter because i'm just going to get shafted anyways and no one's going to listen to me so there's no point in speaking out and me talking wouldn't do any good it would just damage my place in this world and that's the way a lot of people view it but the problem with that level of apathy and a bunch of people believing that their voice doesn't matter is that it upholds a structure that damages so many people. 
So more people need to talk about these things and get comfortable calling out the unfairness of life rather than just maintaining the narrative that, oh, life isn't fair, just deal with it. It's like, yeah, life isn't fair. So why wouldn't we try and aspire to make it more fair, as fair as we can? Why wouldn't we do that? Why would we just accept what's happening and go, life isn't fair. There's a lot of suffering in the world. So whatever, let's just deal with it. This is the way things are. They'll never change. Every law and arbitrary rule that we see in society was created by someone and it's subject to change. Back many decades ago, there's a lot of things that were perfectly legal and allowed that we recognize today as entirely unethical. And I think it is so skewed to live in this modern world and assume that we're so perfect and so forethinking that there's no possibility that any laws or societal structures that are currently upheld are the, are the same type of unethical mindset that we would look back on in the past and go, wow, I can't believe people were okay with that. Like, we have this idea in the present that, like, we're so smart and forward thinking that we have it so figured out that there's just no way that these things could be happening when that's simply not the case they are currently happening and there are a lot of things that when we do eventually fix them and kind of have the epiphany and go this is wrong and change it in decades from now people who are growing up and growing up in a society where these things have never been accepted are going to look back and go wow i can't believe people are were okay with that that's so unethical like a great example is the slave trade. Slavery of black people used to be totally legal and accepted and viewed as a normal and viewing people of color as lesser than and non-human was totally normal. Now, the majority of people would view it as problematic. There's still a ton of racism that stems from that period of time and the level of dehumanization uh, these people saw, which is a huge problem. But it's generally accepted that it's not okay to enslave people. So even though slavery goes on still in other countries, that's not to say that it's not a problem at all, but generally accepted in the sense that someone's not going to proudly with their full trust endorse slavery in the same way that they could have several decades ago. And that is something that's the result of systemic change. It's the result of protest. It's the result of resistance. It's the result of people saying no more, this is wrong, and standing up against something that was so deeply normalized in society at the time that people were scared to speak out even if they weren't comfortable with it. And a lot of the people who did speak out got persecuted for it and were viewed as people who were like resistance armies or acting as terrorists if they did more deliberate acts of aggression to try to put an end to these really big injustices and that's the way things happen we have this narrative that like if you ask nicely that change will happen and that if it doesn't happen you just need to accept it or that the way that things set up are inherently set up to be ethical when there's so much evidence that that's not the case and then people become apathetic because of it but that's not the case there's a lot of unethical things that still are ongoing in the world and that are endorsed and accepted by many people in society or at the very least endorsed by default of people's apathy by not their unwillingness to speak out and rock the boat because of how it would make them feel uncomfortable in their day-to-day -day life and possibly make them the target of judgment but that's the thing is when you want to change a system that has been existing in a prolonged nature, you need to be uncomfortable to do so. You need to put yourself in a position where you're speaking out against the status quo in an uncomfortable way in order to make needed change. You cannot change systems that people have come to accept and feel like 
obligated to be a part of or feel helpless to change while maintaining comfort, especially when the people upholding such systems are wildly powerful. You need to organize. You need to create groups of people who are willing to come together to create and enact change. And you need to be in it for the long haul and continue to persist even when things aren't immediately changing. It's not going to be an immediate change, but apathy guarantees absolutely no change. So, the purpose of this podcast is in, to encourage people into action, not just in the horse world, but in everywhere. Because a lot of the problems we see in the horse world are the direct byproduct of problems outside of the horse world that enable harmful structures that create the very types of mindsets that enable the harm in the horse world. Like the FEI, for example, is a great example of a billionaire corporation that is profiting to the tune of billions and does so on the backs of other people and on the literal backs of horses who are suffering. They don't have incentive to change rules unless they start losing money and unless they start getting such bad public image that there's need for change. The reason why they change anything, like the reason why they're changing the mandatory spur rule and upper level dressage as of January 1st is because of public pressure. They wouldn't be compelled to make these changes if it were not for public pressure. They're not compelled to make any changes unless there's risk of losing profit and public favor and public support. And the same applies to any type of corporation or person who is profiting to the tune of billions based off of other people. If the people that they are profiting off of start to have unrest and start to fight for change and it starts to be difficult for them to exist or less profitable to do so, they will make changes pretty damn quick to try to maintain their profit margins and try to maintain some grasp of their power because their power is reliant on all of the little guys staying in line and not rioting against them. So getting into groups and organizing and just talking about these things and just putting it out into the open, even if it's just you saying these things initially, it does help. It's very uncomfortable to be one of the first people to be a whistleblower and to try to like start talking about the need for systemic change because people will target you because you're an outlier in a society of people who either accept and endorse what's going on or are too scared to speak out. It's hard to be the first person to speak out because you become a target and it will inevitably upset people, even if just because they're uncomfortable with the idea of change and they don't view change as possible. So they take the side of the oppressor because of that. But it's necessary. And that also is how you create volume in the amount of people willing to join a cause is by speaking it into existence, showing people who might have similar misgivings that the thought is out there, that other people have thought the same thing and believe the same thing and creating a resistance and a path to change that is going to continue persisting and pointing out how unethical certain things are until people start listening. But it starts with just talking about it. I've had so many people on my profiles tell me that I'm doing nothing by talking online and that writing things online does nothing and it's just annoying and I'm just virtue signaling and I'm just looking for attention and it's all ego driven. But that's not the case. How do people think any successful resistance movement is created if not by talking first? You cannot create a group of people that is large enough to actually create a viable change without talking ideas into existence and creating support systems where people want to enact change and where they feel supported in doing so because there's a community mentality. The more people who are committed to a cause and supporting of a cause, the more likely it is that more people will join it because it feels safer to do so. When it's just a handful 
handful of people doing it and they're it's a handful of people going up against masses of people who are ridiculing and shaming them and trying to make their lives more difficult. Even for people who agree, it's way harder to join the cause because they're afraid of being ridiculed and targeted in the same way. Community mindsets and bigger groups of people believing the same thing create safety and invite safety for people who believe in the cause but are so afraid of the backlash they wouldn't join unless there's some level of perceived safety. And talking about these things publicly is what puts these things into existence. All of the major resistant movements and strikes and changes that we've seen in the system of our society over the decades and centuries are the result of someone first starting to talk about it, being labeled as a crazy person, being ridiculed by the masses, but generating enough support that they eventually bring change. And there's a lot of people who are willing to do this and put themselves in uncomfortable positions, even if the change doesn't happen in their lifetime, simply because they believe in a different world so much they're willing to will it into existence by talking about it and trying to encourage people to believe that it's possible. And it all starts with talking. So I firmly do not subscribe to the idea that talking is useless and that it's just blowing hot air into the world and that it does nothing. And that the only way is to do action because talking is action. Talking is the creation of action. It's the building of action. It's the creating of a movement and bigger sweeping forms of action. One person doing one action is not going to do very much. Like it's, especially if it's you going up against major billionaire corporations like you're just going to get arrested or targeted and silenced because you're one person it's very easy to bury what you do to intimidate one person into silence but when it's masses and masses of people doing things publicly it's a lot harder to try to silence all of those people and it all starts with talking so this is something that I firmly believe in because I do think a better world is possible. I do think that at default, at their core, every single person on this planet, regardless of their history and background, is deserving of food, water, and shelter and the basic necessities to live. I don't think that's something that needs to be earned. I don't think that it matters what someone's history is. I see a lot of people justifying why homeless people deserve to be homeless because they're not working, they don't get a job, and they're addicted to drugs or whatever. Obviously not all homeless people are, but that's like the stereotype that people perpetuate. I don't care if someone's addicted to drugs. Do you know how many wildly wealthy people are fully functioning addicts and wildly addicted to very harmful substances in dangerous ways that cause them to be a volatile presence in people's life, but they can afford to maintain a certain image because of how rich they are, that it doesn't matter? Addiction is only viewed as a problem if you're poor enough for it to be visible to people. And that is what is the case with homeless people. People see them on the sides of the street, possibly using drugs and being visible and then they have way more contempt towards them and we have this societal mindset where a lot of people blame homeless people for being homeless they look at them with contempt they're irritated by the fact that they see them and that they're hanging out outside of businesses that they might be going to and they hate the homeless person rather than the societal structure that led to that person being there homeless people wouldn't be homeless and visible on the sides of streets if we housed them the only reason they are there is because our society refuses to house them and we could perpetually let these people down by not helping them. And that is something that is the result of the major powers of the world and those who are the most wealthy and influential and who have the most pull in society to make these big changes. They have made a decided choice to place those people visibly in your area where they might be littering and leaving drug needles and stuff that might inconvenience you or cause you to worry about your safety or whatever. They are the direct result of a system that created them. It is not their fault. They didn't create themselves. The system did. And the system could also fix them and put them somewhere else so that you don't have to deal with seeing people 
that you don't want to see. They could be put somewhere else where they could live and be housed and not have to live on the streets. Full stop. The reason they are there is because of the system. And the people we should be blaming are those in power hoarding resources rather than the most vulnerable, marginalized populations that are in the situations they are because of a system that has completely let them down. And that is just the fact of the matter. And again, it's something I firmly believe. Even people who disagree with me that don't believe that everyone's deserving of basic human rights, I think you are, even though I think your views are absolutely deplorable and unkind and dehumanizing to tons of people. And I vehemently disagree with your mindset. I still believe that you're deserving of basic human rights, even if I don't think you're an objectively good person. And this is something that I will continue to fight for because I don't think there's a reason for there to be as much suffering as there is in the world. But we've become so complacent and apathetic because it seems like there's no way out of it that people are just like, oh, this is just the way things are. Like, that's just the way the world is. Oh, another war. That's just the way the world is. We can't do anything when there's things going on across the world. Meanwhile, our governments are funding these wars and sending weapons to make them happen. And also the other thing, too. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. The other thing, too, is that war is polluting and our world is already like we already have a climate crisis. Wars impact everyone, even if you're not immediately in the vicinity, even if your country is not paying for the war to happen. The pollution from that war and how much dropping bombs damages the environment will impact everyone worldwide. So we should all care. And also, like, we're an intelligent enough species at this point that we really shouldn't need to freaking murder people to make changes. Punishment has been studied so widely. and We know that positive punishment and inflicting cruelty on groups of people doesn't actually bring any meaningful change. And that, in fact, it results in a lot of negative follow up behaviors that will follow people for generations. Generational trauma is a very real thing. So even outside of the people who are currently alive and suffering right now, anyone that they, any of their family members or children that they have are going to carry that trauma with them for decades. Like my family having been enslaved back in the day has created generational traumas that make people who are exposed to those generational traumas more at risk of certain mental and physical health issues and outcomes of those traumas even decades and centuries later and that's just the reality of it systemic racism is a fallout behavior of the initial cruelty that we inflicted on people who were enslaved because they were dehumanized to such a standpoint that it's persisted for generations and created mindsets that are very hard to heal and get away from especially when our society still actively encourages or enables those mindsets in some capacity and these are all things that are only really recently changing. Like we used to have very whitewashed ads all over the horse world and also all over regular society where people of color weren't represented as much and where disabled people were never represented. You'll notice that ads are starting to change to have more variety in skin tones and also more variety in people's body shapes and their physical abilities. And this is because of people talking and pushing for these changes and recognizing the injustices and talking about them. Those changes would not have come if we didn't breathe them into existence simply by talking about those injustices. So these are all very systemic mindsets that stretch far outside of like the general world and impact like us in the horse world, people in different industries. Like it is a mindset that is so pervasive in society and so created by the systems we exist in, that it will follow us everywhere we go until we fix it. And that's just a fact. I would really like to see 
change where we become a way more empathetic and caring population and where we have a more community mindset where someone else's suffering is all of our suffering and we care about making everyone comfortable even if they're not immediately involved with our lives there's such an individualistic culture that is encouraged that we really only value our friends family and immediate people in our lives and there's a lot less empathy for people outside of that we also don't consider the fact that a lot of the violence anger crime and cruelty that we see in the world is being inflicted because people are so troubled so unmet in their needs that they choose to engage in those negative follow-up behaviors because they are responding to a situation that they feel trapped and unhappy in and are looking for an outlet it's kind of like again like this is not to just like say people and animals are exactly the same but the horse who's stalled 24 7 that's attacking and biting people and is doing really dangerous things and acting in a really volatile manner that'll make them very unlikable to everyone that works with them because they're so dangerous is reacting to unmet needs in a neglectful environment that is causing them grief and many of the people that we have difficulties with in society are doing the exact same thing they are reacting to unmet needs us being more self-aware and more intelligent than other animals doesn't mean we're immune to doing those things for example addiction is the result of unmet needs it's the result of looking for coping mechanisms for things that are caused by other environmental factors and having that coping mechanism provide enough for you that you become addicted to it people who aren't seeking an outlet for coping mechanisms don't get addicted to substances in the way that we see people who we view as addicted persons it's the result of other outside issues and mental health issues and trauma and societal issues that lead them to seeking out those outlets as their only escape, as the most viable escape in their mindset. It's the result of a system that creates those behaviors. There are negative follow-up behaviors that are the result of deep unhappiness. Most people have unmet needs. We're not being particularly fulfilled and happy in life. Most people would not be working the hours that they do if they didn't have to do it to survive. Most people would be able to do more things that they find fulfilling. They'd be able to cater to their families more and be a better parent, be a better friend, be a better child, be a better sibling if they weren't trying to make ends meet and feeling the need to do the bare minimum just to stay alive. They would be able to be more present for people in their life and therefore heal a lot of other aspects of emotional deprivation because they'd be able to put the time into doing so and they wouldn't just be in survival mode. But a lot of people are existing in survival mode and feel the need to exist in the manner that they do because they don't see a way out. And it is a structure that is intentionally upheld by our societal framework. And it's one that is subject to change if we demand for it, because lots of things have been changed through protest and demand over the years. And the idea that this doesn't work is something that once again, I think is perpetuated by people in power to make us feel more helpless and apathetic than we actually are. We are able to enact mass sweeping change because there's way more of the little guys than there are people in power. And it just requires us realizing the fact that we have more power than them, that we don't have to cater to people who are living wildly, wildly better lives than the average person, but profiting off of the average person and creating a mindset where we feel the need to just consume and continue buying things to fill a void that they're creating in us by not allowing us to live fulfilled and happy lives.
and we can change that. It's a system that is subject to change. It just requires awareness, resistance, and demands for change, and also enough discussion that we can start to think of better ways of doing things and feasible ways to move towards those things, because it's not like a snap your fingers and have a different society type thing. It's action and little steps towards the end goal to create systemic change that will be lasting and will solve a lot of the problems that we see today. And when you start to make little changes and see the problems that they solve, then that reinforces people enough to realize like, hey, wow, this little thing that I didn't think would bring that much change has caused wild sweeping amounts of change and has made me so much happier. And then they'll be more committed to the cause and building change. So capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy, all the same demon. And they impact the vast majority of welfare issues, if not all of them, that we see in horses, as well as outside in regular society. And that is a hill that I will die on. And the thing is, like, for people who feel guilty for, like, the role that they play in capitalism, it's so ingrained in the framework right now that you do need to go to work and, like, do these things to get by and, like, feed yourself. And you need to be part of the system and a cog in the system to some degree. But that doesn't mean that you can't promote the change. You're not a hypocrite for going completely wild and just quitting your job and just not doing anything and just dedicating your whole life to protest and not being able to afford to eat or house yourself. You're not a hypocrite for that. You're literally just doing what you need to survive. A lot of us are still existing in survival mode while we try to find a way out of the system that we didn't have a choice in building and that we're just kind of placed in and forced to uphold. But there's little things that you can do because there's little ways to make big differences. Like boycotts are a great one. A lot of people think boycotting doesn't do anything, but what they don't realize is when the masses of people commit to not shopping somewhere that doesn't support their social values, they result in billions of dollars worth of loss. So it actually does matter. This individualistic mindset where we just look at our own actions and go, oh, it doesn't matter what I do, is so flawed. Doing one little thing, picking one business to boycott or picking one thing to change in your life will do a lot when a lot of people commit to that. You don't even have to do it in every aspect of your life because obviously with all these billionaire corporations owning so many different businesses it's hard to boycott everything that they own because they literally own everything but you can pick select ones to do and commit to that alongside thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of other people and make big changes as a result without even realizing it because you feel like you're just one person. They want us to feel helpless and individualistic and not have a see the power of the community because it makes us easier to control full stop. But there is a ton of power in community and we can enact sweeping change if we just try. And so this is why I talk. This is why I talk on these podcasts. This is why I write the posts that I do, because I believe in the power of the community and I believe the power in enacting change in small little quantities at a time just by helping people believe that there can be a better world and that they can contribute to a better world even within their home even just by liking posts even just by sharing posts even just by sharing their thoughts even just by getting brave and sharing their own thoughts and posts and trying to increase visibility for certain issues there's so many little things and little ways that people can contribute that can bring massive sweeping change and it just starts with us feeling a little less helpless i sometimes spiral and i'll feel helpless and sad with where the world is heading and all the suffering that i see and how much mistreatment is normalized and just the degree of issue in the world and i'll just feel deeply depressed over it but at the end of the day i would rather contribute and try to do what i can to create change than spiraling and wallowing in that sadness or becoming apathetic to the point where I no longer care and where I just allow things to happen around me that I feel deeply are injustice, are injustices. So I'd rather contribute how I can and have my words maybe do nothing, but have the chance that they could do something than to 
either directly uphold the structure by believing in it fully or being apathetic. Because here's the thing. Apathy doesn't do anything. Saying nothing and doing nothing is guaranteed to do nothing. So, yes, your words might be pointless. Yes, they might not be heard. Yes, they might not be listened to. Yes, they might not be bring change, but they also might. So what is the logic in just choosing not to do something because it might not do something and then choosing to literally do nothing, which guarantees no change. And all of the people who are the most loud mouths about how I'm not doing anything to change, they never actually have any feasible suggestions on how to bring sweeping change. And anytime I've ever looked at their pages, they're not doing the things that they suggest if they do have suggestions. They're not engaging in the type of advocacy and actually quote unquote doing things in the way that they say that I should in order to bring real change. They're never doing them. What they're encouraging me to do is just shut up and be apathetic because what I say makes them feel uncomfortable. And being apathetic is guaranteed to do nothing. So their issue doesn't actually lie in the fact that they don't think that I'm doing anything or that they don't think it'll be changed. Their issue lies in the fact that I exist and I'm bringing to light things that make them feel uncomfortable because if they actually wanted to bring systemic change, rather than trying to silence people who are talking about ways to do just that, they would be part of the movement and encouraging ways to more feasibly do that and directly participating themselves. But the people who are trying to silence those who are participating in some level of advocacy or wanting to bring change are never doing that. Their entire intent is in silencing things that make them feel uncomfortable and disrupt their blissful ignorance and apathy towards issues of the world and might make them feel guilty or sad or bad. And instead of just unfollowing the shit that they don't want to see, they try to silence people and make them feel as complacent as they are because they feel guilty about their complacency when people are out there doing things and making themselves uncomfortable in order to try to bring change. So do not let those people change your opinion on anything. Do not let them sway the way you contribute to the society and try to bring change because saying something and trying to will change into existence simply by saying it and having belief in it is way better than doing absolutely nothing hands down full stop so anyways thank you for coming to my ted talk and my hate parade on capitalism patriarchy and colonization um let's decolonize the world and let's create a more ethical and just and fair world in and out of the horse world because if we heal other parts of society outside of the horse world naturally the horse world will follow suit and vice versa healing parts of society that damage people and hurt people and cause mass injustice will heal people everywhere and it'll cause a domino effect of mass sweeping change change. And that is something I firmly believe. And even if I die with nothing changing ever, at least I tried to make a difference. And at least I believed that there was a better world. And I could imagine that better world in my head, rather than just giving in to the apathy and helplessness in thinking that this world that we live in is the only one that is available to all of us. And I'd rather have that. So thank you for listening to my podcast. Let me know your thoughts if you enjoyed this video. As always, I'm always open to suggestions for podcast topics you'd like to see. Um, also video ideas. Is, but I always love hearing your thoughts and I also appreciate it when people review the podcast or share any of the episodes and I also appreciate any of the other ways you can support me and my content. Um, it's always really appreciated. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I hope everyone is enjoying their new year and that you have a lovely, lovely time and that you're surviving in this unfair, unjust world. And if you are struggling, just remember that that is literally what 
our system is created to make you do. They want you to struggle and struggle so that a few select people can have more than what they what they could ever possibly need in their lifetime because they're so unhappy and unfulfilled and they're trying to fill it with money and status and it's not working. So they can never have enough. They're just going to keep hoarding resources at, at the expense of other people because they're missing out on the purpose of life, which is human connection. They're trying to fill that void with things and money at our expense and they're causing mass harm and they don't even realize how that mass harm is actually negatively impacting them as well. So keep on keeping on. If you're struggling, remember that it is part of the system and that's what they want. So just fight the good fight and just believe in a better world and speak it into existence until we manage to succeed because it'll at the very least increase the number of people who are resisting against a construct that does not serve us because they'll realize that resistance is actually a possibility. So anyways, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out my links in the description of the podcast and support my work on other platforms. And I always appreciate everyone who supports the podcast and enjoys it. So thank you. Have a good day.